everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the last week of July 2022. I am Charles Hain. I am a filmmaker. I am here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. Filmmaker Gigi Hawkins. Hey there. Cinematographer, YouTuber, general filmmaker Todd Blankenship. Hey, how's it going? This week, we are going to be talking about trolls and robots. We are going to be talking about <laughs> Hollywood myths. Should you talk about your movie ideas? And I have so much to talk about here. And then in tech news, we're going to be talking about Todd's gotten some hands-on time with the new Black Magic Cloud Pod, which I am like very excited about and a little jealous. This is twice now, Todd, you've gotten to play with stuff before me. You got the DJI 4D before me too. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's right. You, so you're like stomping it on the relationships. <laughs> All that this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, our first story, I cannot believe we're talking about this some more, but we're going to talk about it some more, is we had some reader feedback or listener feedback, because I guess this is something you listen to, not read, although I'm sure someone transcribes it and reads it. We had some listener feedback about our discussion of directors being deliberately trolly last week. And the reader made a really, the listener made a really good point, which I can't believe we forgot to mention last week. So last week, if you if you don't listen obsessively to every single episode two or three times, last week- Which you should. You should. Yeah. There's so much richness here. Last week, we talked in some amount of detail about a phenomenon where every time a director has something in the, a movie coming out, they say some trolly shit and in order to have a news cycle. And, you know, we see this with James Cameron saying he wants everybody to be pee-pee pants. And we see this with, you know, people saying something controversial about Marvel. The, the one I saw this week was Ethan Hawke says it's okay to criticize Marvel movies. And a reader pointed out, and I think a listener pointed out. That's hilarious. Guys, I think it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> wow. He's I'm going to give you my Ethan Hawke permission. <laughs> well, but a listener pointed out something really relevant that we hadn't talked about last week and we should have talked about, which is, if you read the full context of the quote, it is often not trolly, but we are in a period where the media ecosystem looks to reduce nuance and context in order to create a trolly news cycle. And so a lot of times, mm -hmm. these quotes are one little thing from a big, long interview, and in the full context of the thing, I'm just going to use for an example, James Cameron. James Cameron might be saying, you know, I know movies are longer these days, and there's limits to human physiology, but, you know, when we're thinking about the nuance of how long a movie we can make in the theaters, we still want to have all of the story we can possibly tell there. And if that means that some people might struggle, then that's a balancing act we make as filmmakers. And then that gets reduced to James Cameron wants to smell all the urine in theaters of people peeing, peeing their pants. In the <laughs> and like, that's one of those things that like, I recognize that that is a thing. And by the way, that's a thing that's been around for like a hundred years. Upton Sinclair had written a bunch of books before he started running for office. And when he ran for office in California, his opponents would like take one quote from one of his books and run it as a quote of his. So like if the bad guy in one of the books was like, ha ha, I'll kill you all. Like his opponents would run, ha ha, I'll kill you all. Upton Sinclair as a quote in, you know, so this has been going on for a hundred years, this kind of like removing nuance and context. So Thank you, listener, for pointing out some of that. But I also want to say the theme I always go back to with this podcast and everything at No Film School is like, what do filmmakers need to know? What do filmmakers need? And like, I think media training is one of those things that like mm -hmm. we get really frustrated sometimes when people say these like very milk toasty things. But like, 
one of the things you should be aware of is that there's a large potential in the universe for your words to get taken out of context. And like, if you're James Cameron, you have all the power you need and you own half of New Zealand and you don't give a fuck. But like, as you are climbing the ladder, being savvy to how things you say can get twisted out of proportion um, is a good thing to think about as you prepare for the possibility that you might get to participate in media. The flip side of this story is news broke right after we recorded last week that it is now contended by Warner Brothers and they have some docs to back it up that Zack Snyder bought bots, robots, Twitter robots, in order to deliberately stoke online passion for release the Snyder Cut. And I think about this a lot in terms of like, well, what is your obligation as a filmmaker to learn how to buy bots? Now, in this case, Snyder hired a agency that then used their bots to... Because the way it works is like, if you can get enough people, if you can get enough robots on Twitter, you can start something trending, right? Like, you know, of a, of the traffic, if 20% of it's bot traffic, that 20% bot traffic is driving the other 80%. And that's something that's been really documented is sometimes things that seem organic start with a bot conversation that then grow as people see other people talking about it, even though those people are bots. And like, you know, as a filmmaker, I might not have the budget to hire an agency to do it for me, but. The whole indie film ethos is we're supposed to go out and learn how to do all this shit ourselves so we're not at the mercy of agencies and other people taking a profit. And like, I actually don't think that you should learn to go buy bots. But I had a moment where I was like, fuck, am I supposed to learn how to go buy bots? Like, is this a thing that filmmakers are now expected to know how to do? Is this going to be part of the universe of being a filmmaker to have some understanding of driving a viral story with bots? So that's that's sort of our lead story this week. Yeah, so much to uh, respond to. I, I think it's a good point that these quotes are taken out of context. The poll quote, and working at No Film School for a while, come to recognize that so much of what happens with media these days is based around headlines. So many people only read headlines and only respond to headlines and only share things for the headlines. And we all do it. And we've talked about it on the podcast before, and we're all familiar with the dynamic. You'll see a headline that asserts or agrees with something you'd argue, and you'll share it. You may not even read the whole thing, and your friends may not read the whole thing. Or you'll see a headline that just splashes across a hot take that you want to talk about. So you'll share it as a discussion point. People will discuss it. I just think it's part of the way we're moving. We've kind of been reduced to time domain of information we'll share and discuss has become like smaller and smaller. It's an evolution. It's it's not, I'm not even saying good or bad. It's just, we don't have the time or the space to like take in a bunch of information and discuss it long form. We're doing it all in like quick back and forths, whether it's tweets, replies, shares, comments, likes, like that's kind of the, the discourse. So yeah, as we're all part of the web, you know, not the interweb, but like the web of communication. So I think it's it's easy to kind of point fingers and be like, you know, the media is like, and I'm not saying that even our listeners doing that. I'm saying we all can do the, the media is creating this or the the filmmakers are being trolls or the, the you know, the Facebook bots or whatever it is, or it's Mark Zuckerberg's fault. Like it's, it's just the dynamic we're all involved in, you know, it is the discourse. So yeah, we will see the long interview we will pull the hot quote, we will put it in the headline, and we will all share it and discuss it. And I think you're right. Everyone should be aware of that dynamic. 
And that way you can be better at picking and choosing when you're going to give a hot take, how you're going to couch it in a context. Um, and we've seen a couple times someone come out very quickly, some celebrity or major figure, and say like, hey, 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 I said that quote, but by the way, this was the context, just so you don't get it twisted. And they'll put that in Twitter and wherever else. I've seen it happen a couple times. Can't think of examples off the top of my head, but it's definitely a version of modern damage control where you're just like, I just want everyone to know what I meant was blank. And that can often help and quickly diffuse. And then it's a non-story. But yeah, no film school. We're so familiar with this thing. And it's kind of interesting to approach it the way you say, Charles, with like, what does it mean for media training? Mm -hmm. And what does it mean for talking about your work? And when do you use those bullets? And how do you use them wisely? The hot take bullets. I like that. I think it's an important part of marketing. And it's going to continue to be. So if you want people to know about, to cut through the noise, if you want people to know what you're doing, you're going to have to think about how you frame it to cut through the noise without being ridiculous or offensive, you know? And the bot thing is just not, I don't even know where to go with that. (laughs) I just don't. Like, I'm not surprised at all, but I'm also like, man, I just don't know. I wish that when Charles was like, we're talking about trolls and bots, that we were talking about this, like, an indie, like, stop-motion movie or something, and not what <laughs> we're big. actually talking about. Like robots and monsters or exactly, love and like death and robots. Exactly, like a fantasy, sci-fi sort it's of mashup. And, and somebody, and I hope, goes and makes that movie because it needs to exist. I, I feel like... It, I'm excited about the Trolls and Bots expanded universe. Maybe Tim oh Burton should take over. Wait, there, I don't know if you guys saw this movie that just came out and it was a completely independent, mostly stop motion. God, hold on. Let me, can I Google it quickly? God. Like, of, angry God or something? Uh, yeah. Angry God movie. <laughs> mad God. Mad, mad God. God. Yeah. Mad God. Yeah. yeah. Made in over the course of 20 years by this guy. I digress. Anyway, he should make Trolls and Bots the movie because that film was amazing. <laughs> and he had zero hot takes and zero trolling beyond, I think, trolling us as an audience by making the movie, which is brilliant. But I feel like you guys bring up a great point about like thinking about the marketing of your movie and and or project or whatever you're putting out there. And I fear that we're sort of like moving towards this space where we're so we're thinking so much about what how we could potentially come off and coming from a place of you know being a fear fear of being canceled that like are we only going to be giving hot takes that are sort of like accepted within the zeitgeist as politically correct for example or you know like if we're making uh, our own movie and putting it out there like is there will people be questioning whether they should do something versus just moving forward and doing it and trying something as, as both a filmmaker storyteller and like talking about these things, because there's like a fear of being canceled and, and this like web that you're talking about, George, like this web of conversation, it sometimes I feel like it's so easy to get sucked into it that you kind of lose perspective on what's important as a storyteller, especially if they're bots and they're not even real. <laughs> My favorite thing about the bots thing is that that whole time that that was going on and and it seemed like there were so many people asking for the Snyder Cut, I, the whole time 
I, I just kept asking my friends, like, who wants, who is it that wants who this? Who cares that much? Who cares? Exactly. And then the answer, the answer was, uh, Snyder. Snyder wanted it. That's, I mean, it's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? It's just, yeah, I think it's beautiful. I, I, I mean, it's, whatever. It's like, beautiful it, like, that, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and I mean, in a, in a big way, that movie kind of came out and if nothing else, it, it was like a nice little distraction during, during a really rough time. But um, I never actually finished it, but anyways, yeah, it's funny, like, you know, third week in a row, we're kind of talking about the same sort of thing, but it is funny how much it keeps coming up. Like, I don't know. I think it's just like very particularly happening a lot right now. Like just before we got on, I was reading, you know, I, I saw it happen real time, but someone was tweeting that Jordan Peele, you know, they were like, Jordan Peele is the greatest horror director of all time. Tell me I'm wrong or something like that. <laughs> and then and then Jordan Peele himself responded to it saying, sir, put your phone down. How dare you say that about Carpenter or something like that. And and it was just like a nice little, you know, it was like, oh, that's cute. I, I, it's cool that he responded himself and a bunch of other celebrities got involved. And then but, you know, it was just like that, just a little uh, just an interaction, just an authentic Internet interaction that happened. And then, uh, you know, of course, like I just a second ago, I saw it trending on Twitter and it's like, I'm sure a bunch of people are writing articles like Jordan Peele says he's not the greatest horror director of all time or whatever, which is really good for him. That makes him look really humble and nice and, and, and all that sort of stuff. But it's just like, you know, like that, that, that's a news story. A guy sent a tweet and a nice little interaction happened. Now, now it's news, which, you know, this thing keeps kind of coming back. And is uh, that yeah. news though? Is that news? It's, it, it, no, not at all. But I get like it, it's not news. It's but it's just like people just like to hear what directors are. Say. But it's like I don't know. I don't know. There's like a lot of the time I don't even. It's there's there's so many articles and things that are like you can just read the headline and be like okay yeah that happened all right yeah you know and it's just like okay yeah so yeah there's, there's you know kind of I don't want to call it filler content because it is sort of like our industry now. It's like it's for at least on the the bigger the bigger filmmaker side of things. Like you said, the person who made Mad God uh, didn't do any trolling to get people to watch his movie. It was just like a lot of people. You know, I, I had a lot of friends being like, "Hey, you got to see this thing," and that you know. So I don't know. I don't know what my point is, but I, I think it's absolutely bizarre and heinous that he he got ro- bots to do that. But also, like, hey man, uh, you got you got to make the movie that you wanted to make and. A lot of people think it was quite a bit better than the one that Joss took over and screw that guy anyway and whatever. I'm just so fascinated by when I pull back and try to look at it in a greater context, that the way you laid out the the timeline of like, because when you said it, Todd, I remi- it reminded me of that same thing. I kept thinking, who are the people? I don't know them. And it's surprising to me, but like, I guess I feel that way about a lot of and culture, even as a like a big time nerd and fan in my own right. I was at Comic-Con for a panel over the weekend and I see so many fans and I'm like, God, it's just, I'm amazed that people love certain things so much that I can't relate to loving. And I, I mean, not that everybody agrees about anything ever, but still it surprises me, the fandom over certain things. And and I guess, so that's why I was like, well, I guess people just love the idea of what Zack Snyder had in mind. They need to see it. But then when you find out it was bots, it's kind of like, you know, not to bring up a sore subject with Charles, but he and I don't agree. We agree on a lot. We don't agree on the Star Wars, The Last Jedi. <laughs> he loves oh, it. I don't. But, boy. But, but, oh, are, but either boy. way, 
the bots, it was the bots. The bots sank its rating. And this happened in another Star Wars thing recently with the Obi-Wan series. It's Rotten Tomato rating got bombarded by bots. People didn't like the African-American lead villain, the female, and they went after it hard. And mm. this is a thing. It's a gross, horrible thing for a lot in a lot of situations. But the utilization of bots to swing public opinion. And then you see this other version of it that I find hilarious where it's not bots, I don't think, or maybe some of it is, but like fans get behind the idea that they need Morbius to be re-released because it's bad <laughs> and silly. So it's a joke and it takes on internet meme status and a virality and it's a massive troll and the studio did it and they re-released it and it nobody saw it again. And then oh, no. there started, they tried to start a campaign that was like, we were all busy that weekend. Literally <laughs> tried to, to, to make that the joke that, and I don't think they bit on doing it another time, but the idea was like, hey, can we get a studio to release this thing three times to just keep <laughs> losing money? It's weird. The dynamic between Twitter is a pretty small slice of the population at large, right? One of the things I think people forget is that audiences are very, very big. There are a lot of big audiences out there. There's not just this one four quadrant big audience. So Twitter is an echo chamber. And we think it's representative of something. And we're all seeing our own version of Twitter, right? And we all look at it and we think, oh my God, this such and such is so popular or so unpopular. But it's like, that's just your slice of the little piece of the pie of the world. It's not representative, data-wise, certainly. So I think responding to a Twitter urge to re-release something is not good business. <laughs> like, I just don't think, but uh, I don't know, maybe sometimes it is. Either way, it's very strange that the tail can wag the dog in this manner. <laughs> I mean, very for me, it, it goes back again and again to what are the skills you need to learn as a filmmaker? There's a great article. I mean, Aliyah Kazan named names and was rightly canceled for it because you shouldn't rat out your uh, peers to McCarthyism. But he had a great article separate from being from naming names on what should a filmmaker learn? I don't know if we've ever done an article about it in a film school, but like, you know, it's this long, like, he doesn't mention F-stops or pulling focus. It's like a four-page article on, like, learn to hitchhike, learn to talk to strangers, learn to, like, like all of the experiences that can make you have insight into humanity in order to become a filmmaker. And, like, even that, I think, is a little bit, like, marketing-y because I think about it, like, I have a friend who has been in the room for some big studio pitches that landed, and he was telling me about, like, well, the director had started in car sales, and like he'd worked his way through college selling used cars. And it's so crazy to sit in the room and watch him use all these high pressure car sales tactics on the executives and get movies made with it. And mm -hmm. like the, all of this other shit, like I'm a nerd. So there's a part of me that thinks like, if I just get good enough at doing the thing, if I just get good enough at like story structure and exposure and my images tell the story and like all of that stuff, I'll be okay. But the truth of life is that like, no, I mean, you know, Hillary Clinton was the same kind of nerd. Like, I'm not a Hillary Clinton fan, but like, she was like, if I just get good enough at it, I don't need to also learn the other shit of like selling it and making myself likable. And like, she lost. You mean Tracy Flick? Yeah. It's, <laughs> to it's bring that. it to movie, like, movie context. Yeah. It's all, to put it back in a movie context, it's exactly uh, Tracy Flick. It's exactly that like, all I have to get good at is the part that I'm comfortable with. And I think that one of the parts of a journey of any filmmaker is like, oh, I also have to get good at the stuff I'm not comfortable with. And I have to look at this stuff and like, I'm not saying we should all learn how to manipulate bots, but I'm saying I'm not surprised to discover that someone who's had a career like Zack Snyder, who was able to get studio directing gigs at a relatively young age and sustain it for a very long period of time and, and convince people to put 
a franchise in his hands. And he ended up losing it because of decisions he made that were different than other people's decisions. But I'm not surprised to discover that person is simultaneously a person willing to learn how to manipulate bots. I don't want to do it because I don't personally feel comfortable with that. But I'm like, that seems to be within the skill set of gaining studio directing gigs. I'm like, oh, I see that as like all part and parcel. I think it's a bridge too far. I think in the long term, it probably hurt him. But I think it's like, there are all these other skills that we also need to pay attention to mm -hmm. in terms of like working with other people, in terms of how we sell our work to people, in terms of how we do all that, that I think is important to study. It's, that's such a good point. There's no end to the amount of soft skills you can develop that could be of service to you, many of which might be uncomfortable to learn. Just yeah. being good is so... It's such a hard road. It's a possible road, but it's a frustrating road. I've seen it happen because just being very good, people will acknowledge like, damn, so-and-so is very good. But, you know, it's not like scouting athletic talent. It's not like the seeking out for very good and being like, whoa, very good, just proved itself over there and, and everybody's gathering. Like, it just doesn't work that way because there's so much, there's so much noise and there's so much interrelationship and dynamic between people and conversations that open different doors. And it's really unpleasant and overwhelming, but it's also like, it's just critical, I think, to it to be good, but also to figure out some of that stuff because it's going to help you open those doors that otherwise you're kind of passive. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think like the idea, uh, especially if you've come up through the creative field, the idea of quote unquote, selling your idea, like there's so much negative connotation and like grossness around the idea of selling. You're like, oh, you're selling out. You're not an artist. You're, you know, all these things that can sort of deter you from putting yourself out there. But that is doing a disservice to the hard work that you've done. And, you know, it's amazing if you're great at what you're doing, but if you can't find an audience or find somebody to buy into what you're doing to help make it reach more people or bring it to life in general, like you're missing out. You're not doing all the work. Yeah. For me, it's like the, I don't know. I, I, for one, we're talking about a director who is, you know, trying to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on something. And for me, it's a, it's so much more so, it, it, I guess it depends on what sort of artist you want to be, but like, I have more so of an obsession with like, do, is that really how you want to get the thing that you want? Is that really how you want to pull it off? Is like, you really want to use robots to do it? And, and yeah. that's, that's kind of, for me, it's like, you know, but everyone's, everyone's opinion on that is going to be a little different. But for me, it's like, you know, if I, if I can't make the movie I want to make, uh, without, you know, being, having, having, you know, robots do it for me, then, you know, it's like, well, maybe, maybe I don't need to do that thing, but it's also, maybe I do something else that's a little easier for me to pull off. Like I, there, it's just weird to me that specifically I know because of there was, you know, with, it's, it's a DC movie. There's a lot of things that, you know, a lot of red tape he probably had to navigate and, and all that sort of stuff, but it's just like, you know, just go, go make a different movie, Zach. Like, why why do you have to go that, uh, that way about it and and ultimately release a relatively forgettable version of a movie that everyone already didn't really like very much and the the best you can get out of it is like people are like yeah it was a little better than the old one <laughs> that was like the best that was the best review yeah it was it was a little better 
that was like the main review I heard about it. And then it's just like, man, you did all that to to do that. Okay. And maybe it was just like a, a, a mission for him. Maybe it was just like, you know, his rosebud was to make the version of that movie you wanted. But yeah, it's just funny. It's just weird. It's a weird way to go about getting the thing you want. And he, you know, but hey, you know, he did it. Whatever. <laughs> Here we are. All right. Here we are. Up next, we're starting a, a semi-regular thing. It's not going to be super regular, but it's going to be semi-regular, which is talking about myths that frequently you hear on your journey to become a filmmaker and sort of unpacking those myths a little bit. And the myth we're going to be talking about this week is never talk about your project with anyone ever. And that is definitely a common myth that you hear repeated in intro to film classes and all sorts of other things. So we wanted to unpack it a little bit. I mean, it's certainly something I was told a lot when I started out in filmmaking. But I will also say on the flip side, at this point in my career, if someone approaches me to talk about a project and they want me to like sign an NDA too early, yeah. it strikes, it like smacks of amateurism. Like generally the people who are most obsessed with getting me to sign an NDA are the least experienced filmmakers and more exp experienced people I collaborate with. Like it's just a, it's, it's an interesting dynamic on the flip side of that. I know two Wait, people who've had movies plagiarized. So I just want to ch chime in because to unpack the myth, the fear behind it is that your idea will be stolen, right? Or yeah. that no, right. the idea, the fear is that your idea will be stolen. And the counter argument you always hear to that, and there's an article written somewhere, is that like in reality, if you're an unknown filmmaker, your idea is probably not that great. But if it is great, it is going to be cheaper to just buy it from you than it is to steal it from you. Because if you've written a great screenplay that is like legitimately production ready, it is like way cheaper to just buy that from you than to steal the idea and pay an experienced screenwriter to write it. So the argument is generally like, do not obsess too much about your idea being stolen, especially because ideas are, you know, sort of a dime a dozen. Execution is the thing that people are very obsessed with more than ideas, yada, yada, yada. So usually you hear like, yeah, you want to be careful with your idea. Like, don't tell everyone, but like, you don't have to obsess about it. And yeah, like I, like I've definitely read scripts from bigger people without signing an NDA, but I've definitely had people who are like, I haven't even written my treatment yet, but I want to pitch you my log line and I have this brilliant idea for a movie. Will you sign this NDA? And then I'll send you my log line. And I'm like, well, that comes off as a little, it comes off as a little green. So it's sort of an interesting mm. thing to think about like where it lands, because I do know people who've had projects plagiarized. I know two people who have had projects plagiarized where like they wrote a script and it went around and then someone that they knew had it was like, oh, this is great. And then hired other people to do a draft and made that draft and they didn't get credit. So it does happen. You do have to yeah. be careful. But the question is, is mean, like, where does it land? I think that the myth part is that you have to carefully guard every idea you have and that people are on the hunt to steal ideas. People are not generally on the hunt to steal ideas. I think more often, what you, like what you just described, people are on the hunt to steal polished things like a script. And if they can and change certain things, it can actually become kind of tricky to prove that it's a ripoff because a lot of stuff is so similar. And I remember someone I know pretty well 
having this experience. And it was even like they had collaborated with a certain person on a certain script. And then that certain person ended up working on a major property. And that major property's script ended up being very, 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 very similar to that original script. But it was just really tough to prove it. And lawyers were involved. And it just couldn't, they couldn't get it. They couldn't get it done. They couldn't prove that it was because it was just it was changed just enough, but it was so clearly the same. So, but what what happened there was it was a script. It wasn't just an idea. And what I think the issue is is that people think ideas are there are a lot of ideas out there. There are a lot of good ideas out there, and everybody loves their own ideas. So one reason I think you're not going to get your ideas stolen when they're still in idea form is because they're yours. And making an idea turn into a script is a lot of work. (laughs) It's a lot of hard, unpleasant work. Making a script turn into a project that's getting off the ground, that is a whole other round of extreme hard and unpleasant work. So I don't think that in the common interaction among folks, people are going to take one of your ideas and just do all that hard work on it. Because they're more likely to be in love with their own. If your idea is somewhere further down the line in that process, I think you have to be more protective of it. Like if your draft is done, maybe. But then again, like you said, I've been in plenty of meetings where there was a done draft and people read it. And nothing was copyrighted. Nobody cared. <laughs> it's not like, like, and also so many ideas are just so, we've talked about this one before too, but you'll see stuff that's very similar to something you were working on or you had in your mind. And it might not be because you told so-and-so that. It might just be because we're all living in the same world. We're all reacting to the same stuff. There's some kind of massive unconscious shared something <laughs> going on <laughs> where similar things pop up. And it's not always, it's, it's not as crazy as we think it is for two similar things to exist independently on different parts of the world at the same time. So I, I'm a big believer that you don't have to be overprotective of early ideas or creative ideas. I think that you can always just do the quick copyright thing online. It's very easy. There's a lot of little steps. I was always told you can this like you just register it with the WGA. Yep, you can do that. Is that okay? But is that actually? Uh, I have a very low level of knowledge about all this. Like, does that actually protect things? Because like, I've just always kind of blindly done that. Anytime I like have a script, I just like, I just go do that real quick. And it's like, I think it costs. Well, this is not a legal advice podcast. So nobody should should trust us. We are wading into treacherous water. Yeah, I believe it is something. And I believe something is better than nothing. So I don't think it's foolproof protection. And as useless as this advice might be, maybe Charles or Gigi has more on it. But my take is something's better than nothing. Registering somewhere, having a document, having a paper trail, it's something. So whether or not that's going to really protect you in the end, I do not know. I've never been down that road. So, I mean, the WGA will do a process which is called arbitration. And so one of the things they do as a guild is if there is a project where there is some contention about who deserves credit, who deserves to be paid, all of that stuff, then you you have the opportunity to go through WGA arbitration. And having registered your script with the WGA is going to help in that process because you can point to and you can say, oh, no, I sent you this script on tw- in 2011. And you can see that script from 2011. And so, you know, you've got that backup for you if you need it. And so it can be beneficial to do WGA registration. That's the thing. The problem becomes 
you know, it's relatively easy to go through a script and change names, dates, and locations. And like, all right, so now it's still substantially similar, but like, where does the similarity end? And and how much was actually used? Like, these things get really nebulous as we transfer something from a script to a screen. And as you know, as I always like to point out, I spent five years of my life trying to get a film made about Jean-Luc Godard falling in love with a young actress on the set of a film in 1967. And then Michael Havana Vicius, the director of The Artist, made Godard Mon Amour about a young Jean-Luc Godard in 1967 falling in love with an actor. Like, you know, and it's like, I've never met uh, Michael Havana Vicius, and I am sure that he never read my script. And I am 0% worried about copyright infringement or, or anything. It is just one of those things where two people had the same idea. And that is like, okay, that happens. This is a part of life. And apparently that film bombed. I've never brought myself to see it, but apparently it did not do well. My mind is blown because like you just reminded me that the movie The Artist existed. I was like, that like like one best picture, didn't it? Yes. Yes. One of those weird best picture winners where you're like, what? What No, that that movie's great. That movie is great. I it's a good movie, but it's just it. like no one, no one's ever thought about that movie since that. Year. I'm not criticizing that movie. I'm saying that tradition. I mean, obviously, Hollywood will always give an award to movies about Hollywood, but like it, yes. it, it was a surprising Best Picture choice because Definitely. usually Best Picture is a little bit more of like an American production and a little more mainstream and a little more. And like, I'm not. Oh, criticizing nothing. The movie. Yes, no, I'm nothing saying, captures the strangeness of Hollywood's relationship to itself and awards and the global audience than that winning because that was such a. That was such an inside baseball movie. Like every little thing in it was referential to other movies. Like it was just this love letter to American cinema from a French guy who loves movies. And like, it was beautiful. But yeah, I think most people at home around the country were like, what? What even is that? <laughs> silent? Yeah, it's I, French I and it's silent? Movie. What is going I remember, on? But yeah, I, I love the movie like, to death. Yeah. I sat in the theater and I was like, this is cinema. This is beautiful. Yes. <laughs> but, but it's just like, yeah, it's too. like I never, like I, I walked out of that theater and, and, and I never thought of that movie ever again. It's just, it's one of those weird movies that like sort of, like I was like, oh my God, when you said it just now, I was just like, that, oh yeah, that director, I'm not going to try to say his last name, but that guy made that movie and I've never <laughs> heard of it. Like I, all those actors and the director, I did. I don't know if they've done anything else. I don't. I think they've done weird. some stuff in France. Okay. <laughs> I think okay. that's where they're. That's where. That's they're where they're mostly ha- doing ha- stuff. Hanging their hat. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> all they're right. So, other thoughts on this myth? Well, so yeah, I'm. It kind of goes back to what I was saying about uh, what Snyder did. I have like a th- like a thing in my head with this sort of stuff. A obviously, you know, it depends. You talk to people you trust or whatever. If you're just like throwing your scripts around town something might happen but it's it comes back to that thing where i'm like you know if you if if you want to steal my script and that's really how you want to get something done what whatever i just that's your you know whatever like if that's really how you want to you know achieve your your goals and dreams in life fine it's like like i i i always joke that i have when i when i load up my car for a shoot i have my nice gear bags and the gear that it's like if you really want to steal this go ahead that's fine <laughs> like you could have you could have my 5 year old you know aperture 300d that's like kind of breaking like if that's really what you want to do fine like if that's how you need to get 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 lighting go ahead <laughs> so it's, i don't know it's just like just be careful i mean it's not uh, but i i definitely would never Personally, I, I always lean on the side of like less paperwork and less being that way because I tend to try to only associate myself with people that, you know, I don't think are going to screw me over. And, you know, 
I just got out of one of the worst situations where that that line of thought didn't really work out for me. So don't take my oh, advice no. other than just be careful who you associate with and it don't don't be sharing your ideas all over town. And if you do want to do that, then yeah, maybe maybe have a, a document. If it's like, you know, if this is your magnum opus and it, it means more to you than anything in the world, I mean, why not? Like like George said, something is better than nothing. Um, but also, yeah, if you if you have like a log line and like a half done, you know, pitch deck, like maybe don't don't make them sign an NDA yet. I, I feel like I've shot myself in the foot a couple times, like attempting to feel at least come off as more professional. Like I remember the first script I ever wrote with a partner we submitted to the Sundance Labs and we were about to submit and having somebody read it and we had put a watermark Sundance Labs across it. And the person was like, ah, this is distracting. Like, why is this here? And I was like, because then we look polished. And so it was coming from a place of insecurity, trying to make the script look as professional as possible. But like Sundance Labs readers are not going to be spreading around these ideas and like our names on the cover. But then on the flip side, I've also, you know, I remember recommending a writer to a production company from a, you know, Oscar winning uh, director whose company it is. And then she did not share the script with them. She didn't even share. She would not, she would only share the one sheet unless she was getting money for sharing the script. And, and then eventually when she shared the script with me, I was like, Oh my gosh, this isn't even a script. And there was an opportunity to develop an idea that she totally missed. But also on the flip side, the production company was investing time in this, in this writer who couldn't write at the level that she needed to be writing. Um, and, and it was sort of like this, this missed opportunity to have like a writing sample and a lot of wheels were spun and a lot of time was wasted. And now that I've worked for a small production company, like we get scripts all the time and it's so important, especially if you're coming up through the writer track for people to be able to seamlessly see and understand your voice as a writer or as a writer director. So like, you know, yes, sure. Put a password on your Vimeo link uh, if you don't want it public for festival reasons. But besides that, I think the more your work is out there and it's in this, when it's at the point where it's ready to be shared, like the more opportunity you'll have. And frankly, like if somebody's trying to get us to sign an NDA to read their script unless there's a really good reason to like, I think we have so much volume coming in that we just move on to the next thing. Yeah. All right. So register with the WGA, but it's cool if you don't, uh, if you don't get an NDA before sending to a reputable production company, I think that's a good summary. Also, usually those have to be submitted by we, a lot of production companies, they can't, take unsolicited submissions for the reason that, and you'll see that all the time. Uh, we don't accept unsolicited submissions because legally, if you submit your script and they read it and it's, there's not sort of like this process tied to it and say the production company is working on a baseball movie and you have are submitting a baseball movie, they don't want to be liable for reading your script. So if you submit something that's not through a lawyer or through an agent or a manager, like most of the times it doesn't get read too. So something else to keep in mind. All righty. 
Up next, tech news. So Blackmagic rolled out a whole bunch of new cloud tools this summer. I'm actually the the last job I just delivered, this fashion job. We upgraded to 18 and used the cloud sharing for the projects. And it was everything I always wanted it to be. It was like everything I thought Adobe Cloud was going to be when Adobe Creative Cloud came out a decade ago. It was like, ah, oh, my editor can open the project and I can open the project and we can both look at it and like, you know, all they have to do is close it and we both have the media and it's linked and it's just like, ah, oh, it's so good. And then they have a bunch of hardware toys that are along with it that I haven't gotten to play with and Todd has for keeping your media synced between multiple users with some slick hardware. So you've been using the cloud pod? So that, yeah, I've... I've been playing with both the Cloud Pod and the Cloud Store Mini. And the Cloud Store Mini is the 8 terabyte. It's basically the same thing as the Cloud Pod. It just happens to have 8 terabytes of, of uh, storage just included with it. Um, but they essentially function relatively the same. But to me, it's actually really interesting how sort of having both makes sense. So to explain what it does, the Cloud Pod itself turns anything you plug into it, any uh, supported drive, into network attached storage when you attach it to a network. So what this means is if you're like a DIT and you you know where you're shooting you have a have happen to have Wi-Fi, you can then share the footage that's being shot on set with anyone who's connected to that network like instantaneously. But there's a lot of really cool tie-ins that I think just go so far above and beyond that, which that in general is just a really cool thing to have. Um, so Say if you also use like Blackmagic cameras, like Blackmagic 6K, and you happen to shoot on it on an SSD that's you know a USB-C SSD, you can just take the dailies and plug it straight into your net- network storage. And the thing that's really really cool about it is if you use Blackmagic's proxy generator, which now when you download Resolve, it comes with that. You can set up watch folders, and as soon as you plug your drive in and you drag the footage over to your network it's going to automatically make proxy files. And then you can tell the drive itself to send those proxy files straight to Dropbox. And they're going to eventually add like, you know, I, I think they talked about maybe eventually trying to add like Google Drive and, and maybe some, you know, um, what's that one, Backblaze or whatever that's called. And so you can then have, basic, basically you're shooting on set, you plug, you know, you get your, when your SSDs gets full, you plug it straight into your cloud pod it instantly starts making proxy files that are going straight to Dropbox. And then right then and there, you have in, you know footage that anyone in the world who has access to that cloud can start editing. And so that in conjunction with the amazing cloud workflows that they introduced in, in Resolve 18 that you were just talking about, Charles, it's like a really, really cool, it's like a robust system that plays together really, really nicely. So you can just like uh, what I've been doing is I have, so I have the the Cloud Store Mini, the 8 terabyte thing, and they have like a giant one coming out soon. I don't think it's ready yet. I think they're still kind of, you know, working out some kinks, but like, I think they have like a 120 terabyte thing you can, you can like special order, which is really cool. So what I've been doing is I've been having the Cloud Store Mini as my like active projects, like camera originals drive. And then when I'm on set, I'll, I'll use the Cloud Pod to instantly generate the proxies. And then when I get home, I back all that stuff up again onto the Cloud Store Mini. And then you, so then you have, you know, eight terabytes of network attached storage. It's super, super fast. It has like a, a weird little HDMI out port. So you can like, uh, it, you know, it has like this little futuristic sci-fi-ish looking HUD that tells you like what your data is doing or whatever. I, you know, it, it, I don't really have much use for that. But I, I, can, I can imagine if you were on set with like a DIT cart and you had like a monitor that was like 
blinking and flickering and you're like, yeah, that's the data. And, you know, the client's like, <laughs> oh, wow, that looks, you're, you're legit. You're like, yeah, so that little flickery thing, yeah, that's the, the shot. That's the shot we're looking at. You know, it's like, it's, it's just that's neat to have. Yeah, and it, it, and it also it actually tells you how your uh, Dropbox uploads are going and all that sort of stuff so you can tell when they're done. But yeah, so I'm proud to uh, share that I have now fully switched over to Resolve. And I think, Charles, I think you were, you were telling me I needed to do that back in the day. And I finally done it. And it was this, all this cloud stuff that they're doing. It, it was the thing that I was like, okay, yeah, it's time. It's time. So yeah, it's just, it's so much fun. It's so much fun to, to shoot stuff and like plug a thing in and you're like, oh, sweet. I have proxies now, like immediately. It, and it's like astonishingly fast. And it just works so well. It's so smooth. I've been in the hunt for like a really good sort of workflow for storage and all. You know, the the mountain of external drives that I have sitting four feet from from me right now, uh, it was not working out anymore. And so I, I don't know a whole lot about you know network attached storage or any of that sort of stuff. That's all kind of been just something I've you know just don't know a lot about. But this, the way this thing works, it's so easy. It's you just plug and play and ready to rock, and you have proxies and project files, cloud cloud databases. Yeah. So, so you've been using the cloud stuff, Charles? So I've been using the cloud tools to collaborate. Uh, so my editor lives in New York, but he lives in Manhattan and I live in Brooklyn and like that's far away. And so we make these YouTube videos and I've been Dropboxing him footage forever because I find I've never had the budget. Like there are media specific cloud tools, but they're all really fucking expensive. And I feel like once you get good at Dropbox, it's actually really easy to use it as a media tool. Like you get good at the Dropbox app of like, keep this on this computer, keep this on this computer, and it works well. So we've been doing that for a while, and we've just been emailing DRPs back and forth with each other. But it's always been a little hiccupy where like, he'll finish an edit, and he'll text me, it's ready. And then he, and then I'm like, oh, yeah, you have to send me the DRP. And he's like, oh, yeah, I forgot. And now we're using the cloud tool, which built into Resolve 18, like your projects just live in the cloud. And there's like a cloud tab, and there's all your cloud projects. And he'll text me and he'll be like, it's ready for review and I'll just open it. And I have all the media and he has all the media because we use Dropbox and it just, just all works. It's just like slick as hell. We just did, like turn around these videos. And what's nice about it is, you know, we're using the proxy generation. So we shot 6K on the DJI 4D for this fashion vid. And like it made the proxies, it put them on Dropbox. And then like he had them because they were proxy files. And then I was able to stay linked to the full res while he was cutting the proxies. And he would make a change and I would make a change. And then like, it was just like so painless. And I was like, this is what I want the cloud thing to be. I want to feel like my editor is just down the office from me, but it's all slick. And that's literally just using Dropbox on our computers. That was a really small fashion job. It was like one day shooting. But then I look at the hardware tools and I'm like, you know, the, I had a buddy like 10 years ago at a production company, World War Seven, and we had a production company and we were all in the same office. And I remember talking to him once about network attack storage. And I was like, yeah, I feel like we're almost at the point where we need to buy network attack storage, but it's like, it's really expensive. And he's like, but the worst part is every time you're about to buy it, you know, if you wait six months, it'll be half as expensive. So like exactly. you're always putting off buying network attached storage. And I would work at like some big companies. Like I would work at boxer films who were doing campaigns for Walmart and whatever. And I was like, what's your network attached storage situation? And they were like, we still use a sneaker net which means you have your assistant editors like wandering around the building holding hard drives with their sneakers. And I worked at some facilities that had NASs and, you know, it was great. It's nice. But like, this is this nice little hybrid thing where like, honestly, I'm trying to figure out right now, I'm like going back and forth with Blackmagic of like, can I just shoot straight to this? 
like, can I just take the USB out of the 12K and plug it straight into this? And it just shoots my 12K files into this. And then it makes proxies and it puts them in the Dropbox folder. And like, can I just do that? So, like, but, but what you're describing, cloud. what you're describing is kind of the cloud pod. I mean, it's, it's really, uh, you know, there's one more step in between, but that's kind of what it is. And that's what's so cool about it is you, it, it, like you kind of, you can be pretty much anywhere provided you have decent internet, but you can, you can kind of have that happening. Um, Cause I asked them, I, I, I was talking with them and, and I was like, are you guys going to get in into any of the camera to cloud stuff that a lot of people are talking about? And they were like, well, that's kind of what the cloud pod is meant for. That's kind of their, like, that's a big part of their goal with that is just to make it sort of like an onset or, you know, roaming solution to that problem. And, you know, like if I was on like a, a travel job and had like, you know, a team of editors with me, like say something like going to do NAB coverage or something, this would be so, so sick for that. Cause you, you know, you just be in the, in the hotel or whatever, set up a little, a little, you know, Wi-Fi network plug it into a router and then all the editors have everything and people are just running cards. You just plug it right in. Bada bing, bada boom. You, you, you know, all your, all your editors are working on stuff and then you put the, yeah. Next you put year's the NAB the coverage. There, there you, you go. go. There you go. <laughs> now they really, they really figured it out. The thing I love about black magic, I just feel like they do a really good job of kind of like developing things in the right order and kind of releasing them in ways that make sense. Like when they came out with black magic raw, which is in my personal opinion, probably my favorite raw codec when they came out with that it was like man this is really good this is really really good and then later on you find out oh the re- whole reason they made that was so that it would make the the black magic 12k a pos- you know possible and then you know now they, they can't, can't come out with resolve 18 with all the cloud stuff you're like, oh that's really really cool and then they drop the the hardware that makes it even cooler they kind of tend to do that a lot and I, I really i really dig that it's like they kind of think through their steps in a way that makes sense and it always seems to work pretty well. I've never, you know, I have, it's been a long time since I've had any issues with anything they've put out. But yeah, I, I think another thing about, I, Charles, I, do you also agree that, I don't know what they're doing with their proxies, but their proxies look so nice and they're so small. Like they have really good proxies. Usually with proxy stuff, I just like, I'm like, man, this looks like crap. I, it's hard for me to like really tell so if, my, if this is good. I have a theory good. on that actually. So Is it black, is it that it, it's black magic? <laughs> oh, sorry. So sorry. It's their scaling I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I had I had a client once who was like obsessed with tracking this down. And so we spent a half day while I was on the clock. This was a couple of years ago. I was on the clock. I was getting paid. And he was like, I want to like, we're mastering 4K. We have a 4K monitor. We've got like nine different types of footage. I want you to run it through every single option we have for upscaling to see which one looks the best. So we just use Resolve software. We used a Teranex hardware. We put it through, obviously, Final Cut 10. Premiere, like we put it through every piece of software we had. I think he even paid to get all of the, you know, like I think Magic Bullet had an upscaling software, like I can't even remember the name, but like Magic Upres or something. We did all of it. And I was like, all right, if you're paying me, I will happily like not color grade for the day. I will just like do a deep dive on upscaling. And like by far the best looking upscale was just Resolve software. It looked better than the Resolve Terranex looked. It looked better than the Genom chip looked. It looked better than any of the other upscalers. And that was a couple of years ago. And then like two years ago, they, uh, in one of, I think the Resolve 16 release, they were like, we've completely rewritten our upscaler algorithm and it's even better. And I've tested it a little bit since then, not as much as I did on that one job. And I was like, yeah, it looks even better. Like if you're going to take 1080 footage or SD footage and put it in a 4K timeline, you just do it and resolve and it'll look the best. And I think that same upscale technology also applies to their downscale. Like when I look at a lot of proxies kicked out by a lot of software, I think 
edit readies, proxies also look very nice. But when I look at a lot of proxies, it's like, oh, you're just using the simplest algorithm possible. So like shit looks really macro blocky and chunky really fast because you're like, oh, we're just making proxies. We don't care about our downscale. We're just going to do it fast. And I think Blackmagic actually applies a good algorithm to try and make the lower resolution proxies look as good as they can. And yeah, yeah get it ready in Blackmagic have really nice looking proxies. And so. I, there, and it's just like the, the I, I love how seamless the proxy workflow in Resolve is. Like I have it set up where I just, if, if I want camera originals, I hit the two key on my numpad and, and boom, it snaps in. It's really sharp and nice. And then if I want to switch over to proxies, I hit three and it just goes back to the proxy. So it's like you can oh. kind of check and go, check and go. It's so nice. I'm really, really... I'm really sure having fun with Resolve. As if if you're listening and you're a Premiere user, it might. I mean, just give it a shot because it's it's you use it and you're like, oh, you know, all the things that you're used to crashing out and like problems and stuff. Uh, yeah, I really hope Adobe gets it together and starts re- redesigning their software from the ground up because it needs it. Yeah, the, I also just want to give a final shout out to all, in all of this to Ethernet. All of these device, devices still use use Ethernet. And I know some people are thinking like, Ethernet? I ran Wi-Fi in my home 15 years ago. Why are we still cabling the internet? And I just want to give a shout out to like, so many of the jobs we do are in busy RF environments. So like, when you try and like, if you're at NAB, if you're doing a trade show, if you're doing any of that kind of job, the number of times you have to stop through the day to be like, I'm no longer getting good sound from my wireless, I got to try and find a better frequency is like crazy, because there's so much RF going on. And the ability to be like, I'm just going to run this Ethernet cable and it's going to plug into one end and plug into the other. And it's going to give me the Internet without using RF radio frequency data like Ethernet's not going anywhere for things like this. It is nice to still have that port. Yeah, for sure. Sweet. All right. Well, I think that's a podcast, guys. I'm on the <laughs> Internet at Charles Hain and at uh, YouTube. Charles Hain. I'm doing videos there. I'm doing Twitter stuff. And uh, yeah, I got a project called Gold Status coming out soon, and I will be doing some posts about the weird bikey shit we built for that. I'm at Lost in Graceland. I'm hosting Channel 101 this month. So what? Wow. Uh, I'm co-hosting with Chris De La Cruz, who's never done anything with Channel 101. So we're doing a Channel 101 101. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I'm Todd Blankenship. You can find me on uh, Instagram and YouTube at Am I a Filmmaker? And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. And you can find everything we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast and send us your questions and comments like the one we got this week about directors and trolls and such at editor at nofilmschool.com. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Follow, like, comment all that good stuff. Thanks so much for listening. Mm